Well, this morning we begin a new series, series in the book of Jonah, the Old Testament uh, minor prophet, a uh, story that is uh, both familiar to many and probably not known by most as well as we think. We dig in this morning, uh, and we'll be looking into uh, Jonah chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 1 through 15 uh, this morning. Uh, But for the next several weeks, we'll be camping out in some of the same passages. I know some small groups like to study in advance, and we just thought we would mess with your minds uh, for a little bit. Um, uh, But there's just so much that is in this uh, book. Uh, that is often overlooked, uh, that we want to look at the passages and then look at the particular themes uh, and how they apply to our lives. Uh, And to do that, we have two options, either to look at the passages or let me preach for two and three hours each week. I figure the first, so. Jonah chapter one. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it. Uh, to go uh, with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried uh, out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God God will give a thought to us and we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew uh, that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not. The sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as as it pleased you. 
They picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. The word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word and its many expressions and the genres, the stories as well as the clear declarations. And we pray now as we come to the story that you would speak to us, not entertain us, but speak to us, helping us to know from this man, Jonah, what we must see in ourselves, that we may be in all of you, and we may recognize what is true in us. But in so doing, may we stand in awe all the more because we are reminded over and over of your great love. So Lord, bless us in the hearing uh, and considering of this word this morning. We may praise you. We may grow in your grace. We pray all this in the incomparable name of Christ, our Redeemer and our King. Amen. I don't know about you, but I feel like I know Jonah. I mean, I've heard the story so many times that it almost seems like he is an old friend. But while my familiarity with the story of Jonah makes this compelling, it is my similarity to Jonah that makes this story concerning. See, Jonah's story is really simple. It's, it's about a man trying to run from God, and then the overarching story is God's uh, sovereign love and intervention uh, in preventing him from running from him. Uh, but it's important that we recognize that no matter who you are, that you are able to identify with Jonah. In fact, we, we need to identify with Jonah. Because in one sense, Jonah is a reflection of every one of us. Because in one way or another, every one of us is prone to run from God. As one commentator noted, the first step in the Christian life is to, or at least the first step in, in, a, in a vibrant and a healthy Christian life, is to recognize that you have run from God, that you may still be running from God, and that you will try to run from God. Another commentator pointed it out this way and said this, is that the most profound self-knowledge is to know your own unique strategy for trying to escape from God. And so as we look at this story, it's not just about the entertainment, it's not just about story, it is about the awesomeness of God and what God is doing. It has implications for God's mission in the world. It also has implication for the way that God deals with his own people, Jonah, as well as for us. And so as we look at this story this morning, as we enter into this series, I want to look at it in, in three ways, just as, as the introduction. We're going to look first at, at Jonah's calling. We're going to look second at Jonah's flight. And we're going to look finally, or at least very briefly, touch on uh, God's intervention before we wrap everything up. So let's begin at, at the very beginning. We'll, we'll talk about Jonah's calling. And to talk about Jonah's calling, it's important that we talk about Jonah and uh, 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 himself. And, and while Jonah's story is very familiar, so familiar that many of us feel like uh, we may know him, uh, the truth is we don't really know a whole lot about Jonah. Not a whole lot has, uh, has been revealed. And even that which has been revealed, many of us don't necessarily think much about. He's kind of like that person in your life, maybe back in high school, that you just saw so often. They were just so familiar, but you just, when you think about it, is you don't really know much. So what do we know about Jonah? 
We know that he was a prophet of God uh, who served in the northern kingdom of, uh, of Israel, prophesied in that area. He served around 800 years BC. He's mentioned one other time in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 14, where he prophesied positively for Israel's king Jeroboam II. Now, if you're an Old Testament scholar, that itself should make him somewhat suspicious because Jeroboam II was a rotten, awful, evil king. In fact, as we begin the whole thing, it's just, he didn't give up the evil ways of his predecessors and he embraced them and he did it. It was evil in the eyes. And then here in the midst of that introduction of this awful, rotten king, we're told that Jonah, the son of Amittai, he came and he prophesied not so much about uh, Jeroboam, but that Jeroboam would be successful in acquiring a particular land in, in a battle, and Jonah was the prophet, and and, and speaking, and what uh, was turned out to be true. Uh, but again, it was only a fraction of the story as to what God may be doing there. Uh, but for some, uh, it would make him somewhat suspicious, is that he, you know, seemed to be siding with uh, the unfaithful king. What he was really doing was just saying, this is what God told me to say, and he was offering no moral value uh, to it one way or the other. He's just saying, this is what's going to happen and part of God's plan and what God is going to do. Now, the fact that he's mentioned in that point also should uh, re resolve a question that many people have. Was Jonah a real figure or was he just a, a parable that uh, was told in story form and that Jesus alluded to? Well, he prophesied elsewhere and he was known and he was recognized and he was appreciated, not only by uh, the, the Jews through all history, but Christians through all history, but even Muslims have a place for Jonah uh, that, uh, that they recognize and they respect and they revere him. Jonah was a real person, a historic person. A person who was called by God, a person who served God, and whose service has been recorded. And now as we come to this part of Jonah's story and this part of, of God's history, uh, God places a, another call on his life. God says, go to Nineveh, the capital of the ancient Assyrian Empire. And if you understood what that was for Jonah. It might give you more sympathy for the way he behaves. The most probably familiar way we would be able to put this in our context this is this, is perhaps that you would be called to go to declare the Nazis uh, that they need to stop the way that they were behaving. Now, Imagine it, another step is that it's not just you, most of us are not Jewish, but imagine that you grew up in a Jewish family and you weren't called at the tail end, but you were called in, in the height of the Nazi uh, evil and told to go over to Germany and to not only tell them to stop, but to call them to repentance in order that God would have mercy on them. That's essentially what Jonah was called to do. Because the, the Assyrians, according to historians, were the most violent and the most militarized empire the ancient world had ever seen. And their military tactics and their brutalization still makes even contemporary military people cringe. 
If you were to go look up, and you can look up online or look up uh, on, uh, on YouTube, but the Biblical Archaeology Review uh, tells us about some excavations that have been taking place or, uh, in, in, the, in the city of Mosul in northern Iraq, which incidentally is where Nineveh was. Nineveh has been replaced, and it's just, it's, uh, Nineveh is, is part of, of that city. But in the excavations, they uncovered a series of large wood carvings in the entryway of the Assyrian, of, of the palace of, of Assyria. Buried and been buried under the rubble. They discovered it in the, the middle uh, 19th century, but they've continued to be at work on it. Uh, and in these carvings that are in the entryway are intended to intimidate and to impress the people who would come into the kings. And they are depictions of the military prowess of the kings, in particular of the conquering of uh, the city of Lachish, uh, which is the second most important city in ancient Israel, second only to Jerusalem. It was, we, we see uh, recorded in, in Second Kings how the Assyrians came in, and, and this is uh, uh, archaeological findings that of, of the Assyrians' depiction of it. And uh, let me just kind of read what uh, they record for it. One of the set of carvings, in particular, known as the, the Lachish Reliefs, I don't yet understand why it's a relief, but uh, it must be an, a term of art of some sort, tells the story of the Assyrian conquest of the ancient Israelite city of Lachish. The images show the Assyrians impaling Israel soldiers and citizens. They came into the town and then they just impaled them and then they left them out to hang. Another of the, of the carvings, shows them skinning people alive with a carving knife. Another shows them piling up skulls on top of the walls around the city to demonstrate what they have done. And then those that they allowed to live, they would take all of them out of the town and they would scatter them elsewhere and making, allowing nobody's life to go back to normal. These were a brutal, brutal people. And even as these depictions show the, the history of these people, uh, not just in general, this was their practice uh, and that was known and, and feared all throughout the, uh, uh, the, the um, ancient world. But hust particular hostility was upon Jonah's people, upon the Jewish people, upon, upon God's people. And, and it was even recorded. This is what they celebrated. It was in the, the front of the palace so that anybody that came in, this was the artwork. This is what they wanted you to know about them. This was the mindset. This was the attitude. This was the history of the people. And God calls Jonah a, a passionate Jewish nationalist and said, Go to them and not just tell them that they're doing wrong, but call them to repentance. It's an absolutely incredible thing. Maybe to personalize it, we need to put it this way. Imagine that God came to you and said you needed to go to that person who brutalized you when you were in middle school, the person who you would least likely want to see have mercy. It's difficult for many of us to, to even understand because very few of us, no matter what trials and traumas we might have experienced, would have any reason to develop such hatred for people because we've not been 
subjected to the same kinds of things that Jonah was and, and, and Jonah's people had been called to. But this is what God was calling Jonah to do, to go and to preach to them. Call them to repentance so that they are able to receive grace. How would you feel? That's the calling. So what's Jonah's response? Well, we we know what Jonah's response is. Jonah, rather than complying, Jonah sailed toward Tarshish, as we're told in the text. Now, uh, scholars are not uh, in agreement as to where Tarshish was geographically, uh, people, the scholars are, seem to be divided that it is either, uh, Tarshish was either a city in Spain or in England, and both of them have uh, s- symbolic significances. Uh, most scholars seem to think that it was in Spain, which would be the exact opposite direction from where Jonah was. And so God says, I want you to go this way, and Jonah says, I'm going the other way. And he went down and got on the boat to go the other way and, and to go to Spain. And so it's, it's, a, it's a vivid uh, description is he wants to do the exact opposite of what God is calling him to do. The scholars that say that uh, they believe that um, there is, uh, that Tarshish was in England, it would still be going in the opposite direction. But at that time, England would have, because of, particularly because it's an island, would have been considered the ends of the world, the end of the earth. Nobody knew anything that was beyond that. And so Jonah, if it was in England, at very least he was going in the exact opposite direction, doing the exact opposite of what God wanted him to do. But he was even willing to go to the ends of the earth to avoid not only doing what God wanted him to do, but as the text keeps saying over and over again, to avoid God, to try to get away from God, trying to escape. He's trying to flee the presence of God. He's going somewhere where he will be left alone. And even the, the, the willingness that we see of Jonah to be tossed into the sea uh, in order to, to calm the storm, and we'll look at the storm more next week, yeah, we, it, it can be looked at in different ways. There, there's one sense in which, well, he did it because he recognized his own guilt and he didn't want the, the sailors to be subject and for their ship to go down. And, you know, he, he didn't want the people hurt because of what he was doing. But it's also that Jonah was saying, you know what? I would rather die than do what God wants me to do. There's the intensity behind Jonah's response to what God had called him to do. Now, Jonah 1 tells us what God called Jonah to do, and Jonah 1 tells us how Jonah responded. But what Jonah 1 doesn't tell us is why Jonah responded that way, what his motive was. Now, in our imaginations, and certainly would have been understanding is, why would I want to go to those people? If I go to those people who hate my people, therefore they're going to hate me, they're not going to listen. Even worse than that, if I go over there, they're going to kill me. And because these people are so wicked, it won't even be a quick death. They'll use me as a demonstration. They'll put me on a pole, hang my head, skin me alive, whatever. Maybe do all of those things, all of which, you know, if it was me, I would really not look forward to. I embrace the same mindset. I had a seminary professor who was a missionary, and he said, you know, his theory was when persecution comes your way, run, run far away and live to preach another day. I like that mindset. Um, (laughs) 
And so it would be very easy to project that. And, and, and no doubt there was some of that in, in Jonah's mindset, but that's not really the thing that, that, that motivated him. We'd have to move ahead to Jonah chapter 4. And we see what made, a, made Jonah do what he did. Because in conversation in Jonah chapter 4, we see Jonah's motive is this. As the Lord confronts him, uh, he, he responds to the Lord as, Lord, I knew you were gracious and compassionate. In other words, Jonah refused to go, not because he was afraid of failure or of personal harm. Jonah refused to go because he was afraid of success. Because he knew the character of God is gracious and he's compassionate. There is one sense in which Jonah is essentially saying and revealing to us is this, is I don't want any good thing to happen to those dirty, rotten, evil Assyrians. Or if you're a fan of Samuel L. Jackson and you've seen him play Carl Lee Haley in John Grisham's A Time to Kill, he's saying, yes, they deserve to die and I hope they burn in hell. That is what he's saying about the Assyrian people. And that's what motivated him to turn the other way. But do you see the irony here? And irony is a kind way of saying the hypocrisy. We identify, we can understand why Jonah would not want to go to those people. Those people were against his people, God's covenant people, the very people that God had entered into a relationship with and said that through you, I'm going to bless the nations. I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. But God had also said, I called you out from among the nations, as he's speaking to Abram, where the covenant was established. Not because you were great, not because, but I called you under my grace. I called you simply to express my favor. And if you know the history of God's people, you know that they were fickle and often unfaithful uh, to God, and yet God continued to be compassionate and to have mercy on his people and to provide for them, to love them, and sometimes to correct them. And so Jonah was angry because he didn't want people who didn't deserve God's mercy because of the way they treated God's people who didn't deserve God's mercy. On top of that, Jonah himself, just like every one of us, was somebody who was a recipient of God's mercy. And even as we see God's response to him here in Jonah chapters 1 and 2, and, and well, really through the whole story of that, Jonah is the beneficiary of God's mercy. He's directly disobeying God. He's running from God. He's willing to die to not obey God. He's willing to go to the ends of the earth in order to disobey God. And he becomes the recipient of God's mercy in vivid ways, and he understands that. And even as a recipient of God's mercy, he decides that other people don't deserve. He doesn't want other people to have God's mercy. The reason this is significant is not just so that we get an understanding of Jonah's mindset, but it's because it's here where I begin to find not just the familiarity, but the similarity. 
Because what Jonah does, Jonah's mindset, Jonah's attitude is not exclusive to him. It is common to all. We as Christians, we, oh, we celebrate, we sing about being those who have been delivered, not just from the world, but from our own sin. We have been forgiven. We have been redeemed. We have been restored. We have been the recipients of God's compassion and God's mercy. And God has called us to be his vessels, to be ministers of his compassion and mercy in our communities and through intentional mission throughout the world. And yet, most of us have our limits. We may not act with hostility in the same way that Jonah did, because we may not hate a particular people or people group the same way that he did. But the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And the fact of the matter is, we go about our lives enjoying the privilege of being those who have been redeemed by God, those who are the recipients of God's mercy. We've become so comfortable with it that somehow we, in the back of our minds, even though we would never say it this way, is, you know, well, of course, and, you know, we're not perfect, so therefore, you know, God's patient, but somehow we begin to think that we deserve it, or at the very least that somehow we... It, the fact that we're God's people somehow makes us better than the other people, which is therefore why we deserve his grace and mercy, at least more than other people do. And as I look at Jonah, I have to ask myself, are there people that I just don't care about? Whether it's individuals or people groups, And the answer today may be different than tomorrow in terms of the specificity of it, but we all are confronted with that unless we are active, our lives are oriented towards honoring God, not only through our worship, but through our engagement of those who are far from God. And sometimes even those who might be our enemies. The root of Jonah's problem is Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is the attitude that believes that somehow there is something about us that is special or privileged. The gist of Paul's message to the Romans is that we all have a, a patchwork of righteousness by which we consider ourselves good or at least better than somebody else. It may be our education, it may be our money, it may be our religion, it may simply be that we don't consider ourselves better than anybody else. So we consider ourselves better than those who consider themselves better than somebody else. But one way or another, we are all prone to the same problem of trying to look at the scorecard and fixing it in a way that we come out on top. And the most gracious among us then fixes the scorecard that also includes our friends and the people who are most like us. But at the end of the day, when we tally things up, it is an us and there is a them. And we consider ourselves better than the thems, whoever the them are. And we assume that God, therefore, must think more highly of us 
than he thinks of them either. And it is a constant throughout the scriptures, and it is a constant throughout the life of the Christian that is sometimes a kick in the gut when we are reminded that God loves the them as much as he loves you and as much as he loves me. And that may include the very people who hate you, who reject you, who despise you, who have mistreated you. See, we see in, in Jonah uh, uh, something that a, a very vivid e- example of what uh, is in, in one sense common for all of us and what God is doing through Jonah's story is drawing us out. See, as some of the commentators have, have noted, and I thought it was really it was very fascinating, is that the way that this is written, and I believe Jonah wrote it, uh, the reason I really believe Jonah wrote it because you know, the way that the whole story unfolds, I, I, shorthand, and we'll probably bring it up again some other time, basically I believe this is Jonah wrote this story because of the way that it ends and because he looks like such a fool. I assume this is essentially the message he did on his speaking tour after this because we don't really know what happened. And he begins to let me tell you what a fool I used to be. And so he doesn't finish the story as to whatever happened to him afterwards because, you know, that would, nobody would ask him to come speak. Uh, but this is the message. I believe that, that Jonah wrote it for that reason. And it's written in such a way that as we watch the story, we identify with Jonah, and then subtly throughout at different points, we all begin to feel superior to Jonah. We look at Jonah and say, I like him, but what a fool. And then we get a kick in the gut when we realize, no, this is us. This is every one of us. Maybe not as vivid, but every one of us has this same challenge. Because work within every one of us is this need, this this sense need, part of the brokenness, to feel that we are superior to somebody. If you ever saw the the movie... um, Mississippi Burning. Uh, Gene Hackman uh, is uh, was an F- works with the FBI, and it's uh, goes back to the um, uh, the lynchings of civil rights workers uh, in 1963 in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And Gene Hackman, being from his character, being from Mississippi, understands the, the mindset of the people who uh, are there. Uh, whereas the other federal employees, federal uh, FBI agents that are coming, they Mississippi feels like a foreign country, and having lived three years in Mississippi, it can feel like a foreign country. And trying to explain to the agent the mindset of the people, that there's just inherent needs for people to feel that they're superior to somebody, he tells a story about his own dad. He said, my dad was a, just a, a poor uh, uh, you know, farmer, as a poor uh, sharecropper. And he worked alongside the field with uh, the others who were poor, some white, some black. Then one day, one of the men that he worked with, a black man, bought himself a mule and was able to then multiply the work that he did and brought in more money. And he said, my father one day saw that mule and he, you could just see the anger in his eyes. And that mule ended up dead. My father never admitted what he had done. But the next time he saw that man walking by our house, he just looked at me and said, son, if you aren't better than, and I won't say the word, the N-word, for the sake of kids who are in here, then who are you better than? And the other guy is scandalized, as we are. But he's just saying, we have this sense need, and sometimes it is ugly. It's always ugly. The ugliness we see in that story, the ugliness we see in others, we just need to recognize we have this propensity. The question is not if, it's to whom. 
to whom do we consider, or whom do we consider ourselves better than? And Jonah is a living picture of this for us, of this attitude and the ugliness of this attitude. And when we have this attitude, then we become less inclined to do the very thing that God has intended for his people to do in the first place. Because it's vitally important that we remember, and I think Jonah, as he's writing this story, he's assuming that the people who are reading this have the recollection. Remember that God called Israel for the very purpose to begin with. He said, I chose you. I made you a nation in order to bless the other nations. I blessed you and I will continue to bless me. You are my people. It's not, I didn't just use you because there is an affection there. But the whole calling of Abraham from the very beginning was to bless him so that all the nations of the earth, all the peoples, all the people groups would be blessed. And that means all. And throughout the Old Testament, Israel's history, and throughout church history, Christians, we like the privilege, but we forget the responsibility and the purpose. And we look down our noses at the people who are around us. And so we become uncaring about the poor or the oppressed. We justify when terrorists hate our way of life and my religion. We don't feel compelled to love them. And it's been said this, as if you want to run from God, which is if you think what God is calling you to. I, I think I'm back up because I think that the question that we need to ask is this, is where is the line that you have? All of us need to ask that question. Where is that line where we're saying, God, I'm willing to serve you. I'm willing to obey you. I'm willing to honor you. I'm willing to worship you. I'm willing to go this far, but that's too far. We all need to ask ourselves that question. Because when that expectation becomes real to us, we have two choices. It's either to obey or we run. We may try to physically run, or we may run by busying ourselves in other things, other things that seem to be really good, but we don't obey. It's a way of running, a way of hiding from what God is calling us to do. And I don't remember who it was that said it, but. I think there's a profound truth in it is if you want to run from God, there will always be a ship that is heading in the other direction. And somehow we convince ourselves that that's God's blessing and his providence. In one sense, it is God's providence, but not the way that we assume. And we see the evidence of that in the way that God reacted to Jonah's fleeing. I'm not going to go into it in great detail this morning, but again, you, you already know the story. Jonah got into the ship that was going the, opera, uh, going the opposite way, and then God raised up a storm. In one sense, the ship was God's providence that Jonah didn't understand, because in the ship, because of the storm, Jonah then had to come face to face with himself. And it's not because God was... This is just angry, you know. Who are you to disobey? It is also because God is loving and he wanted Jonah to come to the end of himself. 
and to find his fullness in God and in obedience to what God had created him for and called him to do. And so we see that God sends the storm as a, a sense of an intervention in order to reclaim Jonah. Not just his mission, but the man. It is said that there's only two types of people. There are those who are running from God, and there are those who will run from God, or at least try. And Jonah is calling us to see that we fall into one, at least one of those two categories. And it's an invitation for us, seeing the foolishness of this, to stop. And here's how we stop. First, we turn and know that there is no refuge from God, that our only refuge is in God and in God's provision for us. Because second, there is only one way that we can turn to God and have refuge in God. And it's not by committing to be a generally good person. It's not even committing to obey what God is calling us to do. It is through Jesus Christ who uses the story of Jonah to point to himself to say, this is why I was sent here. A refuge is in Christ who loved you, who died for you. He was the one who was thrown into God's wrath in order to satisfy it. And the difficulties we have, and again, the focus of next week will be to, to see how God brings all these things about in order that we would recognize that our sufficiency, our wholeness, our reconciliation, everything is found not in our performance, but our resting in God and in his grace. But as we look at the story, I want to finish, finish up with this. I'm going to read lyrics. It was uh, Michael Card was a popular uh, singer-songwriter um, through the 1980s, 1990s, and still out and performing some. But one of his early songs was taken from uh, an old poem by English poet Francis Thompson that was called The Hound of Heaven. And Thompson wrote it and was an archaic language, so I'm going to use Michael Card's words. But I want to leave these with you, and I want you to be thinking about these. Because it's a picture of the relationship of those of us who recognize ourselves in Jonah and our God. I fled him down the nights and days. I fled him down the path of years. I heard all about the love of the one who was following me. I clung to every shallow friend, the whistling mane of every wind. I feared that once I tasted that love, I could never let go, because those strong feet kept following the way I sped. But the love that followed overcame the fear that fled. To Mother Nature's breast I flew and shouted to the sky so blue, please hide me from this one so set on loving me. Came back a voice, it sounded like the bursting sea. None will shelter you who will not shelter me. Finally, I can flee no more. I yielded to your open door. The prize you sought for so long is finally yours. Your dark and gloom have hounded me for so long now that I can't see. I surrender all those things you've taken from me.
came back a voice. I did not take them to cause you harm. I only wanted you to seek them in my arms. The story of Jonah is not just the story of somebody who was trying to run from God and God's intervention and to get him back on course. It is the story of God and how he relates to people who in their own self-righteous justification don't love even though they have been loved. And yet God loves them, which is good news to me. And I hope it's good news to you. May the Lord grant us an appreciation, an identity with Jonah as we begin today and unfolds in the weeks ahead that we would see this is not just a simple child's story where somebody made a mistake, things got corrected, and all things ended up well. This is a deep soul searching through whom we can learn to know ourselves and even more know the love of God. Father, we give thanks to you for this word. And I pray that you would take the simplicity and show us at the same time the brilliant complexity. That we would not just know of Jonah, but through Jonah that we would know of ourselves and through both that we would know of you. Lord, restore us. Help us to understand the great nature of your love and that your love is not only for us, but for all on whom you would have mercy. Lord, shape us that you would use us, is my prayer for us as we study this book. That you may be praised not only by us, but by all who you choose to reach. This we pray in Christ, who has enabled us, who has redeemed us, has restored us, and who loves us more than we know. To him be all praise in your church. Amen.